Ezekiel 21, verses 14 through 23. As for you, son of man, prophesy, clap your hands, and let the sword come down twice, yes, three times, the sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them, that their hearts may melt and many stumble. At all their gates I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed, I also will clap my hands and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. The word of the Lord came to me again, as for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost and make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting and to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them, it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to their remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane and wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, ruin, ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. Say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, <coughs> excuse me, to place on you the next to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you, and I will pour out my indignation upon you, and I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, as we start off into this section, like I said before we got started, there is a, a major mix of topics we're going to be covering tonight from this study here. And the first thing I want to do is deal with the first words that he, Ezekiel's told here in verse 14. As for you, son of man, prophesy, and he's told to do what? To clap his hands. And look at verse 17. God then says he's going to clap his hands as well in fury. Now, as we read this, it sure sounds like the clapping of the hands means a form of judgment, doesn't it? But as I was beginning my study, I was also reminded that there are very famous passages throughout the Bible of clapping our hands. You remember some of us have sung the songs, the trees of the field will clap their hands. You remember that one? And we talk about how there's going to be a clapping of the hands. And we've always seen those clapping of the hands as praise and celebration, Right. But here it looks like it's judgment. So what I did was I went back and looked at all those passages prior to this 
that talked about the clapping of the hands. And you know what I found? That as much as those passages were referring to praise of a sort, they are all in the context praising God for his judgment. And you're going to see this concludes, these verses here, 14 through 17, concludes the prophecy about the tribulation period and end of the tribulation period in the millennial kingdom, which we've been looking at for about three weeks. And then it's going to go to the next verses, verses 18 and following in a little bit tonight. You'll see it's going to go back to the time of Ezekiel and what's happening then. But he's been prophesying about the judgment of the nations at the end of the tribulation period, carrying over into the millennial kingdom. And these verses here are the conclusion of it. So let's have some fun and let's go back and look at those famous passages where the Bible talks about clapping your hands. And you're going to see that they're in the context tied to praising God for his judgment when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. So go with me to um, Psalm 47 and look at verses 1 through 9. Psalm 47, verse 1 says what? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued the peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Has this happened yet? No, that's when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth and all the people will worship and praise him and all the shields will be his because he's in control. And what does the verse say in verse one? Clap your hands, all people. Give praise to God because he's coming to rule over the earth. The clapping of the hands is a praise, but they're celebrating God setting up his kingdom in judgment. Go to Psalm 98. I want you to realize that whenever God says something, if he hasn't already said it before in the scriptures, he'll explain what he means when he says it. But if he says something that seems out of place in the scripture, that means he's already used that term earlier and they should have already understood what it meant because of what he said prior. You see, when he tells them, clap your hands, if you knew the Psalms, you know clap your hands is tied to him coming to set up his kingdom. Look at Psalm 98. Look at verses 1 through 9. Oh, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of horn, of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness in the peoples. With equity. 
Again, the clapping of the hands is a praising of God because he's come to judge the earth and to set up his kingdom. This is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period as the millennial kingdom is set up. That's when all the nations are going to praise him and clap their hands. And that's what God was referring to at the end of the section we're looking at there in Ezekiel. Now, I'm just going to have some fun here and to share with you a little story from Psalm 98. I was reminded of it last night while I was teaching. Years ago when I, I was associate pastor of a church in New Orleans, uh, Becky and I were, had been married, I don't know, maybe two years at the most, three at the mo very most. And we went to, on a date. And we went to Texas, uh, Harold's Texas Barbecue in Metairie, Louisiana. And we, or, it's one of those places where you order your food at the counter and then you go sit down and they'll bring it to you. So we ordered our food and we went and sat at a table. And as we sat down on our date, I looked across and in the back of the restaurant, there was an older man in the back who was sitting there reading a Bible. I turned to Becky and I said, you know, I have to go talk to him, right? And she goes, yes, I know you have to go talk to him. And I said, so I'll be right back. So I left our date and went over to talk to this man. And I just told him, I said, you know, I, I had to come over and just talk to you and tell you that I'm just, I'm, I'm so excited to see someone in public reading their Bible. Come to find out he was the owner of the restaurant. It was Harold himself. And he looked at me and he said, I'm a prophet. I said, okay. He goes, I know what year and day Jesus is coming back. I said, well, the Bible's pretty clear that no one knows the day or the hour. How do you know? He goes, oh, you're one of those scoffers. <laughs> and then he sat down and he had me sit down next to him. And he then went through from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm not kidding you. From Genesis to Revelation. All the places that talked about the we's and the us's and the they's and the them's. And he says, it's something that the we's and the us's will know and the they's and the them's won't know. But those of us who know Christ, we will know and they won't. He had a convincing argument. The problem was Jesus said, no man knows. There was no we's and us's and they's and them's in that passage. He then looked over at Becky and he said to me, don't you get bogged down by the cares of this world. <laughs> I said, that's my wife. He said, oh, OK, then that's all right then. And I'm thinking to myself, not much of a prophet, but <laughs> he then said to me, he said, because you're a scoffer, I will tell you what year Jesus is coming back, but I won't tell you the day. I said, OK, what year is he coming back? He said, well, one day I was driving in my pickup truck and all of a sudden God gave me this vision. And he told me that the answer was going to be in the 98th chapter of a book in the Bible. And I said, Lord, there's only one book in the Bible that has 98 chapters, and that's the book of Psalms. And then I began to pray, and this number represents this, and this number represents that. And he went through all how the numbers all represent something, which I'm a little leery of, to be honest with you. That's man's way of coming up with stuff. And then he said the number nine refers to judgment. So I went to the 98th Psalm and looked at verse 9, and it says, Behold, for the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And he said, that's what God showed me, that he's coming back in 1998. Now, this was 1992, 1993. By the way, did Jesus return in 1998? Now, interestingly enough, I've often wondered, I wonder if Harold went to see Jesus in 1998. But what came out of my encounter with Harold was this. As a young preacher boy in seminary, actually I had just graduated seminary and was on staff at this church now, I was humbled by how well he knew the Bible inside and out. The fact that 
when he pulled to those places, they were marked and read, and he knew where all of them were. And I'm not kidding you, he went through the whole Bible. And my wife will tell you, I came home that night and I said, God wants me to know his word as well as that. I want to get it correct, but I want to know the word that well. And as we read this passage, it just reminded me, that's the passage Harold took me to. Let me show you one more. Go to Isaiah 55. Look at verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13. Speaking to the nation of Israel, it says, You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. When's that going to happen? The millennial kingdom, isn't it? End of the tribulation, beginning of the millennial kingdom. But again, we see the clap your hands. Three times now prior to Ezekiel being told to clap your hands, and I'm going to clap my hands in fury. They would be reminded of the prophecies that said the clapping of the hands is going to happen at the end of the millennial, sorry, the tribulation period, beginning of the millennial kingdom. So I just wanted you to see that this section in verses 17, that's uh, 14 through 17, is the conclusion of the prophecy about that time period. Now, verse 18 changes. And the word of the Lord came to me again another time. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. And what he's told to do is to build a signpost. How many of you used to watch MASH? You remember, you remember MASH? You remember the signpost they had on their campus, if you will, that had all the different, so many miles to all the different cities? Well, Ezekiel is told, remember, he's in Babylon, prophesying to the Jews that are in captivity in Babylon. He's told to make a signpost, and he's going to have one sign on it pointing to Rabbah of the Ammonites. That's the capital city of Ammon. And another sign pointing to Jerusalem of Judah. And then he's told that he's to show them and act this out, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and he's going to stand at this signpost, and he's trying to de going to decide, do I go and attack Rabbah of the Ammonites, or do I go and attack Jerusalem? Now, the reason he's choosing between these two nations is in 593 B.C. Now, let me back you up and make sure we're all on the same page. Nebuchadnezzar has been attacking Jerusalem off and on now for a long period of time. In 605 B.C., he came and he took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others and took them captive and then in 597 is when Ezekiel and his wife and the 10,000 captives are all taken away. And Zedekiah has been made the governor, the king over Israel, been done that by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he's told, remember, Zedekiah is told by God through Jeremiah and by Nebuchadnezzar, look, if you submit yourself to me, it'll go well for you. But if you don't, it's going to go bad for you. And even God said through Jeremiah, look, God is the one that's doing this discipline Humble yourself, submit yourself to it, and make just let what he's accomplishing be accomplished. Don't fight against it. Now, let me just take a second to talk to you about my cancer real quick. I thank God for all the people that have been praying for me to be miraculously healed. And if I were to be miraculously healed, there have been enough people around this globe that have been praying for me. I mean, literally thousands, tens of thousands have been praying. But as I've been praying, God's been speaking to my heart. And he told me, he said, Jim, I told you years ago that you were going to have this cancer. Remember, I told you some before, some of you might have heard, that years and years ago, God put on my heart 
that most likely I was going to have cancer one day, and I was to submit myself to it because God has a reason and a purpose. And what he's been showing me as I've been praying for him to take it away, he said, why would I tell you years ago that I'm going to give it to you to take it away? This is something I prepared you for. Submit yourself to it. Go down that road. I have a reason. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. I can tell you the doctors are saying the kind of cancer I have is very aggressive. The kind of chemicals they're giving me are pretty toxic. I hope, still pray through the cancer treatment that I'll be cured. And, but God has a reason. He says to me, submit yourself and go through this journey. I have a reason. And I am submitting myself to that. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, God, then kill, cure me through the chemo. But if he says no to that, he has a reason. And Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah told uh, Zedekiah, don't fight against Nebuchadnezzar, but submit to him. And it'll go well for you. God's got a purpose right now. Unfortunately, Zedekiah didn't listen. And he actually gathered a bunch of nations together to all plot how they're going to fight against Babylon. The Ammonites and Judah decided to come together to fight against Babylon. They even invited the Egyptians to come up and help them. And then the Egyptians turned around. And now Nebuchadnezzar knows that the Ammonites and Jerusalem have plotted to come attack him. And so now he's deciding, where do I go? Do I go attack the Ammonites first, or do I go attack the Israelites first? Now, before we get to how he decides which way he's going to go, let me just show you just what I told you about from the Scriptures. I don't want you to just take, well, Jim said this happened and that happened. Again, say, Jim, that's great. Where did that Bible say that happened? Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. Second Kings chapter 24, verses 18 through 20. To Zedekiah, chapter 24, verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hematal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Here we know that the scripture says he rebelled, but now go to, excuse me, the book of Jeremiah. Look at chapter 27. Jeremiah 27, verses 1 through 11. It says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of, of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. All these nations have come together to Jerusalem to make this plot. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your master. Masters, it is I, God says, by my great power and my outstretched arm that I have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his sons, sorry, his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But 
If any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until they have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. <coughs> Excuse me. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and to dwell there, declares the Lord. So now all these nations gather together and we see Ammon's a part of that group. The plot against Nebuchadnezzar. God sends word to them through Jeremiah, don't do it. But we know from history that in 593, the Ammonites and the, um, the Israelites of, in Jerusalem decided to plot together to fight against Nebuchadnezzar, even though they were told not to. Now, they had hoped to get some help, like I said, from the Egyptians in their combined rebellion against Babylon, but the Egyptians turned around and went home. So the Babylonians came to deal with them for good. Let me show you what I'm talking about there. Go to Jeremiah 37. Look at verses 1 through 10. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, chapter 37 of Jeremiah. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. He reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through the, Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the priest of the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, um, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew, withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained only of them wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. I love this. God said, even if you defeat all of them, and the only people left in their, of, their, of their army are the wounded ones and the ones who didn't dare leave the tent when the fighting started. The chickens. I'll take the wounded and the chickens and defeat you. You're going to lose this. I'm doing this. So Nebuchadnezzar is making a decision. Do I go and attack the Ammonites first or do I attack Jerusalem? Go back to Ezekiel 21. Look at verse 19. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land. Make a signpost and make it at the head of the way to the city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah and to Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to attack it. Now, 
as you're going to see in the next verses, um, in verse 23, it's going to seem to them like a false divination. The them that it's talking about there is not the Babylonians, but the, the Israelites. Because remember, he's making this prophecy in front of the Israelites. And when he shows them what's going to happen, they're going to think that's a false divination. But what we see here is, is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come to this signpost, if you will, or this parting of the ways. Do I go to Ammon and attack them because of what they did? Or do I go to Jerusalem and attack them? And he's going to consult the arrows. We'll talk about that in a second. He's going to consult the teraphim. And he's going to consult an actual an animal's liver. And they're all three going to point to Jerusalem. Does anybody have any idea how they all are going to point to Jerusalem? The Bible tells us, go to, go to Proverbs chapter 16. What's that? Actually, the opposite. Yes, it's not the enemy. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. And look at verse, I believe it's 33. Look at Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. If you go back in your minds, we're not going to take the time to do this. We don't have time to do it. I'd love to show you. It's a fun study. If you go back and look at all the places in the Bible where they cast lots. Has you ever noticed that every single time, whether it's the Jewish people or non-believers who are casting lots, they always point to the truth? Here we have when a and the nation of Israel's sins are Ai, uh, sorry, Achan and his family sin in Jericho and they take the stuff they're not supposed to take. Then they go to the next city, Ai, and they're going to easily defeat him, but they don't because God doesn't bless it. And they try to find out, well, why, who's responsible? And they kept casting lots and it narrows it down to this one family. And guess what? <laughs> Lucky guess? No, God made the lots fall in a certain way that it pointed. Remember when Jonah's running from God and he's not wanting to go where God wants him to go and he gets in that boat and then the storm comes and they're throwing everything overboard and they finally start calling out to their gods and they cast lots to find out who's responsible. And these are men that don't even know the true God, Jehovah. And they cast lots to find out and it just so happens that it points to Jonah. Actually, we even see casting lots in the New Testament. The Bible actually says in Acts chapter 1 that after Judas had killed himself, Peter stands up in the room of people of 120 in the upper room there after Jesus' death and his resurrection, but they're waiting until the Holy Spirit comes, and they're just there in the upper room, and Peter stands up and says, well, the Scripture says we have to replace Judas. So we've got to choose from among us men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom, but not only that, they'd have been here the whole time with us from his baptism until his ascension. And there were a couple of them that fit that category. And the Bible says they cast lots. They prayed this prayer. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us whom you have chosen to fulfill this role. And they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. And that's how they replaced Judas with Matthias. Now, a lot of people over the years have said, well, they should have never done that. God wasn't it. And I'm like, oh, no. That's, those people just want Paul to be the 12th apostle so bad so that they have to come up with a way. But the scripture is very clear. The lot is cast in the lap, but God directs which way it goes. He's orchestrating everything. So when Nebuchadnezzar consults his arrows and consults the teraphim and consults the liver, and they all point to Jerusalem, God's pointing him to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly how it worked, but I can give you some rough ideas of how it worked with consulting each of these things. Those of you that play golf, you, you know how this is, Neil. You know, when, when, you, when you're about to tee off on hole number one, what do guys do to determine who hits first? They take a tee, 
throw it up in the air. You know what I'm talking about. And when the four, if those of you that don't play golf, the four guys will stand in a square on the tee box. Someone will throw a tee up in the air. And then once it hits the ground, whichever one it's pointing to, that one hits first. And then they throw the next one and the other three guys that determine. And, and in a similar way, there's a couple of ways, ways this could have happened. One is they write, you know, the name of Jerusalem on one and Ammon on another, throw it up, and whichever one hit the ground first, that's where we're going. Or it could have been like the T, where they throw it up in which way it points. That's where we're going to go. The teraphim was their idols, and the, you know, there's always weird ways they consult their idols and get in some information on their idols, but the liver is kind of a crazy thing, isn't it? They used to actually consult livers. They would take an animal liver, and they would read the liver, and they say, that's nuts. Not really. I, on the way to First Baptist in the Atlantic last night to teach the same Bible study, we passed a place called Psychic Angela. And, you know, you can go to these places and they'll read your palm. And just by reading your palm, they can tell you what's going to happen in your life. Or they'll read the bumps on your head. You know what I'm talking about? It's the same type of a thing. Years ago, uh, we, we loved the Muppets. And if you've ever, ever seen the Muppets version of Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? With, uh, oh, I forgot his name now. Paul Simon, he's on the Muppet Show and he's singing, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? in this wonderful set that looks like an old Scarborough Fair. And as he's playing, this one Muppet yells out, Lifelines, read your lifelines. And so he stops his song, goes over to this Muppet and sticks out his hand. And he says to the Muppet who's reading his palm, What does it say? And the Muppet says, Sing fast. <laughs> but so it's, it's hilarious. But he, whatever he did with the arrows, pointed to Jerusalem. Whatever he did consulting the teraphim, pointed to Jerusalem. Whatever he did with looking at the liver, pointed to Jerusalem. Because God had decided that he was going to attack them first. They'd had their warnings. They'd had their chances. Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar's been attacking for years. God, through the prophet, is saying, humble yourself. Submit to what I'm doing here. And it'll go well with you. You'll stay. But if you don't listen, you'll go through fire pestilence, disease, sword. And they keep rebelling, and God says the time's up. Remember how we read earlier that during the time of Zedekiah, the time had come where God now is going to cast them from his presence? And so Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks Jerusalem. Now, I want to encourage you. You could easily say, well, since Psalm, uh, Proverbs 16, 33 says that the lost cast in the lap and the Lord directs it, I can, can consult these stuff. No, no. Listen closely. The last time you ever see casting of lots in the Bible is the last one I referred to in Acts chapter 1. Do you know why? The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. He comes to live within us, and He wants to be the one who guides us and directs us. And when He lives within us and we play our horoscope or whatever, He's grieved. He's grieved. And sometimes... He'll still orchestrate what you read, but he may send you for judgment instead of blessing. I don't think you want to do that because the Bible says everything God does for us is good as his children. Now, you don't want him to say, okay, you want to go that way? I'll let you, I'll let you follow that. No, don't use this as a chance to say, well, I can do the Ouija board or whatever. No, don't go down those roads. You'll, you'll suffer a lot of consequences you don't want to deal with. But just keep in mind, it's also something kind of cool as I was looking at this. We have a God that is in such control, he can even use arrows, false gods, and livers to get what he wants accomplished. He has the way to get a hold of people and to get their attention.
was interesting. As I have been uh, going through this journey with cancer, there have been a lot of people that have been saying to me, oh, God's going to use you in the medical field or whatever to lead people to Jesus. And if that's the case, great. But you know what I've started to see already? It's actually God's been using me to encourage and strengthen Christians in this journey. I've never really been an evangelist anyway, but my heart's desire has always been to teach the word, to preach the word to people who know the word and to take them deeper. Yesterday, as I went in and got hooked up with my uh, hoses and all that stuff, the, late, the nurse that was talking to me named Tina asked the dreaded question. She said, what do you do? I said, you don't want to know. She goes, are you a lawyer? I said, no. I said, uh, I'm a preacher. And she started to clap. She said, yay, I'm not afraid of that. And this other nurse was within hearing. Her name was May. She started jumping up and down in her seat. Good. Where do you teach? Where do you preach? And I explained what I do now and how I'm on the radio. And well, when they rent, they stopped hooking me up, ran over to the desk, grabbed paper and started writing down the address of the of the radio station and all this stuff. And we were able to give them business cards and tell them about the ministry and how there's teaching on it and all this stuff and the website. And I started to see there's a lot of my wife will tell you, there's a lot of Christians that are in these rooms with me. I'm not the only one. I thought I'd be the one, one of the few Christians. There's a lot of Christians that are in there going through cancer and there's witnessing going on left and right all over the place. God's plan might be that I'm used to encourage Christians in this process. Actually, a man came up to me last night after Bible study, and he said, Jim, you're encouraging us. As you trust the Lord, you're giving us courage and strength. Folks, I guess what I want to say to you is this. If God is the one who's orchestrating everything... Why are we foolish enough to think, I know what God's doing. I know what I can do. Do you see the foolishness of it? How silly would it be for God to have preordained for this time in my life for me to go through this cancer and then me say, oh, okay, God, I'm going to go use it this way for you. And he said to me, no, no, no. I planned this for a reason. You just walk with me at a day at a time, and I will accomplish what I want to accomplish. Pressure's off, Jim Johnson. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in this time. I'm just to walk with him. And everything he wants to accomplish will be accomplished. Do you see the difference? Folks, we made it so hard on ourselves. All through, God's been saying in the Old Testament and the New, just walk with me. Just walk with me. I will accomplish all the purposes I want to accomplish. My word will never return void. It'll accomplish everything I set out for it to accomplish. I didn't even ask you to go do anything. But just walk with me and speak when I encourage you to speak and don't speak when I tell you not to. And just trust that I will accomplish my purposes in the ends of the earth. So I say to you, whatever it is you're going through, stop worrying about whether or not you're doing good enough in that situation and just walk with him. And watch how you'll see he do things that you never, ever imagined. There are two neighbors that live together next door to us and have for 17 years. Actually, we've been living next door for 17 years. They've lived there longer than that. We just found out one of them was diagnosed with lymphoma. What a wonderful door. We've been praying for an opportunity to talk to one of these two guys. And now I get to go knock on a door when he tells me and say, which one to use my cancer, buddy? And get to show him how I walk through it and encourage him however God wants. Again, 
Wait on God. We'll see. We've been praying for a chance to witness to these guys in some way. We've given them oranges from our tree. We've edged their lawn when we're cutting the grass. They know who we are. They know what we believe. They know where we stand for. We've loved them, but they know that there's a difference between us and them. All of a sudden, a month before I'm diagnosed, one of them is diagnosed with the exact same kind of cancer I have. And I don't think it's coincidence. But again, God's doing something. Let's see what he's got in mind. All right? Now, look at verses 25 through 27. God now tells Ezekiel what's going to happen to Zedekiah and to the kingship in Israel. There's something very, very deep here. In verse 25, and you, O profane, wicked one, prince of Israel. I love how Ezekiel will never call the Zedekiah king. He still calls him the prince. Remember, he wasn't even in the lineage. He's an uncle. And he was made king. And Ezekiel doesn't even consider him one of the kings of Israel. He says, uh, you, O profane, wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. In other words, there aren't going to be any more kings. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be, listen closely, until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. So Ezekiel now, God through Ezekiel tells Zedekiah, take off the crown. There's not going to be any more kings in Israel until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. Between now and then, you guys are going to exalt what is wicked and make low what is exalted, and it's going to be a ruin. Until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. Again, folks, now this is going to be a little bit harder for you to see. This is another one of those places like clap your hands if you had known the Old Testament you would have known exactly what this was talking about because the wording is exact. The problem we have is many of our translations don't translate it correctly, including the ESV. But I'll give the ESV credit. They put a footnote in their, in their Bibles down at the bottom. Go with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, look at verse 10. In Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing all of his sons and making prophecies over each of them. And in verse 10, he says about his son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, that's the rulership, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, the, verse, the part of the verse that says until tribute comes to him, some of your translations might say until Shiloh comes, Correct? But do you have a little study note there on that section? And if you do, go look at the bottom of your page and see what the study note says. Because the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation from the Hebrew Scriptures, if you were to read the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, this is how it words. It says, until he comes to whom it belongs. He's whose it is. The prophecy here said that the kingship will not leave Judah until he comes, the one to whom it belongs. And Ezekiel is told to tell Zedekiah, take off your crown. Things aren't going to remain as they are until 
becomes the one to whom it belongs or the one to whom judgment belongs. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Now, listen, that's why you can probably understand a little bit about the fact that when Jesus did show up on the scene and people believed that he was the Messiah, they got pretty excited because there had been no king in Israel. Zedekiah was the last one. Oh, Gedaliah became the governor under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, but he was a governor. He wasn't even a king, and he didn't last very long, as you're about to see tonight. And at the same time, there never was another king in Israel. All throughout their history, as they were removed from the land, even when they came back in, there were never kings, there were governors. Even now, there's no king in Israel. There are presidents and rulers and that kind of stuff. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, they thought he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he would be and will be. But they had left off the other verses that talked about how he had to first come and die. And he had to be the suffering servant and be bruised. He had to be put to death on a cross. How they were going to pierce his hands and his feet. How they were going to cast lots for his clothing. Psalm 22 said all that. Isaiah 53 said that he would be put to death, yet he would come to life and see the prolonging of his days and see his offspring. There was lots of prophecies about the fact that the Messiah had to be put to death first and then come back. But they knew that the prophecy said that the kingship was going to be given he was going to come from Judah, and he was going to be given to this one to whom judgment belongs. Go to Jeremiah 23. Look at verses 5 through 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Talking about when Jesus comes back to set up his kingship. That's why when the people that knew these prophecies saw Jesus and they started to believe he might be the one, they got excited. But he wasn't conquering. He was letting the Romans do what, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And wait, wait a minute, you're supposed to be taking over. You're supposed to be getting the throne again and getting the kingship in Israel. We're going to be in control. The prophecies say all the nations are going to be underneath us and they're all going to come here and be excited about who we are and... They started to hear him say things about, no, they're going to put me to death. And they all started to change their mind. Maybe he isn't the one. Even John the Baptist had a question or two, didn't he? Are you the one or should we look for another? I'll talk more about that on Sunday. If you could hear, I'm going to get to preach here this Sunday. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But you have to save that for then. Go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's not going to be any more kingship in Israel until the one comes. He comes to whom judgment belongs. And the prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 10, said that years ago. Until he comes, the one to whom it belongs. 
Oh, go back to Ezekiel 21, though. You'll notice that God didn't forget Ammon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had to choose which way am I going to go? And hadn't God prophesied through Jeremiah when they had all gathered together in Jerusalem to make their plots? Hey, if you don't submit, he's going to judge you. Well, that was true for Ammon as well. Go to Jeremiah 27. I'm sorry, not Jeremiah 27. Ezekiel 21, verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, Say, A sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath. In other words, don't bring a judgment just yet against Ammon. Return that sword to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. And I will pour out my indignation upon you, and I'll blow upon you with the fire of my wrath. And I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. All right. Now, the Ammonites' judgment didn't happen for many more years later, but God remembered. Actually, and I'm going to give you a real quick, brief history. I'm going to read it, uh, spell it out to you, then read it to you quickly. When Nebuchadnezzar came and took the captives into Babylon, the third wave, which was the final attack in 586 B.C., burned the city, destroyed everything. He put Gedaliah as governor. And only the poorest of the land were allowed to stay in Jerusalem. Everybody else was either killed or taken captive. Jeremiah was taken captive as well. But as they are leading him out in chains, he gets to this one place, and the word from Nebuchadnezzar makes it to the leader of uh, the commander of the army of, of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar says, let Jeremiah go. And interesting, I don't have time to show you the passage, but it's actually interesting because Nebuchadnezzar says everything Jeremiah was saying about what was going to happen was true, and his God did everything he said he would do. Isn't that interesting? The Jews didn't believe him, but Nebuchadnezzar did. And he said, he's a good man, let him go. And, the, and he was then told by the commander of the Babylonian army, you get to do what you want. You can come with us to Babylon, not as a prisoner, and we'll take real good care of you. You'll live comfortably. Or if you want to, if you feel it's best, you can just stay here with the poorest in the land in Jerusalem. Jeremiah prayed about it, and he felt like God wanted him to stay in Jerusalem. By the way, well, that'd been a tough decision for many of us, wouldn't it? I mean, what was left of Jerusalem at this time? Nothing. There was no food. Everything had been destroyed. There was, there was nothing. Yet he felt God told him, God, God doesn't always give us the easy road, folks. We make all our decisions on, well, they're going to pay more than that. This must be where God wants me to go. Oh, be listening to the voice, the small voice. He doesn't always give you the easy road, but you'll know which is the path he wants you to walk down. And Jeremiah chose to go and live with the poor of the land. And because of that, he still had some more bumps to go through because of their disobedience. Gedaliah is warned. The new governor in, in Israel, he's warned. And he's told, look, there's this guy Ishmael, and he's got some lineage of kingship in his past, and he wants to be king, and he, I've heard word that he's going to kill you. And Gedaliah goes, nah, I don't think he will. And because he doesn't seek the Lord and he just uses his own wisdom, he makes a bad decision. And not many days later, Ishmael kills him. And then there's a battle going on there. And well, let me just read it to you. Go to Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14. It says, now Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they said to him, do you know that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, 
has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Jump over to chapter 41, verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, as they ate bread together there at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. So as they're sitting there eating, all of a sudden Ishmael jumps up, kills them, kills all the people with him, and the Babylonian soldiers who happened to be there as well. Go over to chapter 41, verses 11 through 15. But when Johanan, that's the one that had warned Gedaliah that this was going to happen, when Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came up upon him at the great pool that's in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. God is still keeping track. Let me tell you something that's been going on. The Ammonites have been wanting that land that God gave Israel for a long time. And when they see all this stuff happening, they started to think, now's our chance. We can have that land. And when all this stuff happened, they started to come and take over some of the territory God had given to Israel. Go to Jeremiah 49. Look at verses 1 through 6. The judgment on Ammon. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. See, even though God had them go to Jerusalem at that time, he still remembered what, was, what Ammonites had done, been doing and what would still do. And he was going to bring judgment. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah, put on sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts. From all who are around you, and you shall be driven out every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterwards, I'll restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. I'm going to give you a tough question, and Jeremy, you can't answer, because you answered it last night, and you answered it right. So you have to be quiet tonight, all right? Because I know you're waiting for this question. Here we see in verse 6 of Jeremiah 49 that at the end of this judgment, he's going to restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. We've already done this study. It's going to happen during the Millennial Kingdom. Go back to Ezekiel 21. But didn't God through Ezekiel say in verse 32, You shall be fuel for the fire, your blood shall be in the midst of the land, you shall no more be remembered, for I the Lord have spoken. So how do we put these two together? How are the Ammonites no longer to be remembered, yet he's going to restore the fortunes of the Ammonites in the millennial kingdom? Okay, Jeremy, you can answer it. He's talking to the people 
of that time who are going to hear that prophecy. You guys think you're winning now and going to have this? No. You will be destroyed, not be remembered. But the nation itself will. That's why it's important, folks, to use the whole of Scripture. You see, because I could have taken one verse, convinced you that they would be no more Ammonites. Right? Yet I could take another verse and show you that there'll be plenty of Ammonites. So which is it? You have to put the whole of Scripture together. See, this is the danger we live in today. There's a lot of preachers out there in, the, in, in, in this day and age. And God love them. They're young and learning. And I was that way myself. And I still am young and learning. But at the same time, they're really good with a few verses. And if you don't know the Bible, they can convince you of stuff. They can teach you doctrines that they can prove with the Bible. But the problem is they leave off all these other verses. Yeah, but how do you deal with this one? And how about this one? Oh, that's symbolic, they say. They probably never read it. And that's why you need to understand, because I could only teach you a couple of verses. And have you convinced you need to know what the whole of Scripture says? And so that's why it's important to put it all together. You realize this prophecy has to be talking about that generation that's going to be doing these things. And you're going to be judged for what you're going to do. Because they were told, when you don't, if you rebel against the king of Babylon, judgment's coming on you. And it, it did. And they weren't remembered. But the nation itself will be. Now, I'm going to close with a couple of questions. Is God still in control of his planet today? And now remember how he had said through Jeremiah about Nebuchadnezzar, I give it to control over the world to whoever I choose. Is God still in control of, of his planet today? Does he still put nations in power for his purposes? Does God always use Christian nations? then why do we in the church think that we're supposed to change the world? Go ahead. Exactly. And be honest with you, the Bible says the world's not going to change. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life, folks. Few there be that find it. Broad, wide is the path that goes to destruction. Many go that way. But what's happened is we, in America especially, you don't hear this as much in many parts of the globe that are, uh, have Christian doctrine being taught. But in America especially, there is a lot of preaching and teaching about how we're going to be more than conquerors and we're going to change the world for Jesus Christ. And it sounds great and it feeds our flesh, but the Bible says no. If we're honest, few people listen. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Wickedness is going to go from bad to worse. We, though, who are his people, are to submit ourselves to whatever authority he has put in place for his purposes. Let me read to you one more passage. Romans chapter 13, we'll close with this passage tonight. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Did you see what the people were trying to do when they came to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? In other words, aren't you going to take over? And what does Jesus do? He says, well, whose coin? Whose face is on that coin? Caesar's? Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Did Jesus submit himself to the authorities that were over him all the way through? Even to his own mom and dad. When he stayed on a little longer in the temple and they came back and they said, we've been looking for you. The Bible said he submitted himself to them. He could have pulled the God card, but he didn't. And he actually stayed home for 30 years. Most likely his father had died sometime during that process and being the oldest son, he had to take care of the Mary and the rest of the family. But when he became 30, he began his ministry. Folks, Jesus submitted himself to the role that the Father had for him all the way through, even if that role, the Bible said, meant death on a cross. So I want to challenge you. I can't explain it to you, but I'm experiencing a peace that I can't describe as I submit myself to whatever he has for me. Do you realize how hard the last two days of chemo would have been if I had had my hope set on being healed? And then he said no. And I was mad or disappointed or crushed. And the whole time that they're putting me through this, I'd be grumbling. But thank God my attitude is not my will, but his will. And when you submit yourself to the God who loves you and is in control, and you realize this life is not what I'm living for. The one to come. Life becomes so much easier. But if you're focused on this life and everything working out here, please, if you can be here Sunday, please come. Because we're going to talk about how trials prove our faith genuine and the purpose of trials. And we're going to look at some things that may surprise you. We're going to take a look at what the goal of our faith is supposed to be. And many of us have got the wrong goal of our faith, or the wrong goals, plural, of our faith. I thank you so much for coming. I love you all. We'll hopefully see you next week. Look at your calendars to make sure.